Chicago, January 2020. It's late afternoon. Rogers Park steps from the lakefront. Heavy snow is whipped in, and unless you paid attention to a weather app, and I didn't, let's call it without warning. My rideshare is here. My driver is a lean man. Silver hair, late middle age. He has a foreign accent. Middle Eastern? After exchanging pleasantries at a stoplight with traffic choked, I ask him where he's from. Iraq, he says. I get a sense that riders seldom ask. He asks me, why are you here? Business? I'm working on a podcast, I say. I can see puzzlement in his eyes. Radio, I say, recording interviews. He nods to say, I understand. It's about refugees, I say. We still haven't moved forward on Sheridan. I came as a refugee, he says, in 2003. He's immediately interested in whether I've met others from Iraq or Syria. No, I say, there are so many fewer now. There's no small amount of shame in my voice. Over 13 million Syrians have been displaced. 2003. I know this to be one of the many conflicts producing refugees where almost 40% of the middle class left Syria. His English is good. He learned much of it, he says, in the oil industry before he fled. He was an engineer. He's now driving for a rideshare. He's been an all-night security guard. He sends $635 to his daughter every month for room, board, and expenses. She's downstate at university. I won't say where. He and his family were in a refugee camp. The Heartland Alliance helped me and my family, he says. I tell him I visited them, and I interviewed three persons. Oh, he asks, is David still there? I did not meet him, I say. It's slow going, another light, slush is building everywhere. I tell him my name is Vincent, and finally ask him his. Shames, he says, and writes it slowly in the air with his finger. Arabic, gentle, ornamental curls, so I can see how it looks to him, like art, like something sacred. He's showing me the beauty of his written language. It dates from the fourth century and is the second most written in the world. I see his warm eyes in the mirror. It means, he says, the sun, like the star. This is Crossings, the refugee experience in America. So that was a real-life story from the city of Chicago. And this is Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America podcast, episode two. So we've been away too long after introducing our listeners to a refugee women's sewing program in Denver, Colorado, called We Made This. That's sponsored by the African Community Center, 
If you missed it, you can always go to Anchor uh, and find Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America podcast. We're on, I believe it's eight platforms right now. And one of the easiest ways to find us now and find our episodes, which are embedded there, is our blog, which is crossingsrefugees.blog, crossingsrefugees, one word, dot blog. But we have to talk about our new format, and that was promised in the blog. Uh, We're going to bring relevant news items affecting the movement of refugees and asylees, really not only just in the U.S., but other parts of the world, because we are in the midst of a refugee crisis where there are 70 million refugees and asylees in the world. We also spent a week in Chicago interviewing agencies, uh, clinical mental health professionals, a refugee girls mentoring program, and even a museum with a new exhibit on immigrant and refugee writers. And these will all be coming to you over the next, let's say, month and a half. So we're very excited about this package of Sweet Home Chicago episodes. But we need to get to the news, and I need to get to uh, an introduction here of uh, my co-producer and researcher extraordinaire, Janice Pugh-Wohler. Welcome, Janice. So great to be here, Vince. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, I think you've got at least two items here. I do. The first topic is about climate refugees, and that's being highlighted in the news this week in two ways. Filippo Grandi, who's the UNHCR commissioner, stated at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, that millions of people will be driven from their homes due to the impact of climate change. Possible drivers for climate refugees fleeing their homes would be things like wildfires that unfortunately we're seeing in Australia, rising sea levels affecting low-lying islands, crop and livestock destruction in sub-Sahara Africa, as well as floods worldwide. It's interesting that the World Bank came out in 2018 with a report that is predicting possibly 143 million people in South Asia, Latin America, and sub-Sahara Africa could become climate refugees in the future. Now, wait, I've got to just unpack that number. 143 million, uh, more than twice the number of refugees circulating in the world today. That's terrifying. Yeah, it really is, Vince. But what I want to tell you now is the UN actually ruled on a climate refugee case this week. The ruling was prompted by a suit brought against New Zealand in 2010 by a man from a small Pacific island of Kiribati who claimed that the rising sea levels were a threat to his life. Kiribati, by the way, is a low-lying country in the Pacific Ocean, which has the potential of sinking within the next few decades due to these rising sea levels. In fact, Amnesty International has deemed some of these islands in the Pacific Ocean as canaries in a coal mine, because the islands are only one to two meters above sea level. So I'm not the, the best at the metric system, but that sounds like three to six feet. Precisely. That's exactly what it is. Wow. 
Although the UN did uphold New Zealand's decision, they did note that the ongoing climate crisis could expose individuals to a violation of their rights and specified that hosting countries must treat these refugees similar to those fleeing their home countries due to war or persecution. Well, thanks for that, Janice. Um, I think we have another item here that's, you know, very relevant for today's episode. Just a reminder, we're calling today's episode Resettlement 101. I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, tell me tell me about this lawsuit. The lawsuit, actually, which was filed in the U.S. District Court of Maryland earlier this month, was brought about by three of the nine resettlement agencies challenging the president's 926-19 executive order, which would have allowed governors to stop refugee resettlements in their states. The lawsuit states that this executive order violates the Refugee Act of 1980, which says that U.S. policy is to encourage refugees fleeing war and persecution should be able to resettle in America. The judge issued a preliminary injunction last week stating that the executive order does not appear to serve the overall public interest. And before this ruling, just so you know, 39 states had intended to settle refugees in their states, with Texas being the only state who declined to continue with this resettlement process. And that was uh, Governor Greg Abbott. Correct. And if there were 39 states uh, stating their intention to settle refugees, we know that that has to be made up of Democrats and Republican governors. Yes, it does. This ruling allows government agencies to continue with funding requests without obtaining letters of consent from the local or state officials. The current fiscal year cap, just so you know, for refugees is at 18,000, which is at an historic low for the United States. The government is expected to appeal this injunction order to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in the near future, Vince. So as I mentioned, it's most relevant for today's Resettlement 101 episode. We are all going to school on the logistics in some detail of what it takes to begin the resettlement process after, in this case, refugees step off a plane at O'Hare Airport. And we'll talk about how refugees must get jobs, doctors, schools, apartments, and where the funding comes from that uh, funnels through these agencies. The impact to resettlement agencies of this determination, this executive order, Uh, really can't be underestimated. They're planning. Right now, what we're hearing is the operative word is uncertainty. So let's go to our first Sweet Home Chicago episode, Resettlement 101, with Leah Tiano Gustafson at the Heartland Alliance in the North Chicago neighborhood of Ravenswood. So we're here at Heartland Alliance in Chicago. We're with Leah Teano Gustafson. Uh, she's Director of Refugee and Immigrant Community Services. First of all, may I call you Leah? Yes, you may. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be able to speak with you. Can you tell us how long you've, you've been here at Heartland Alliance? So I have been here for 12 years, actually, um, and I've worked in a variety of roles in my team time here. Um, started as a youth case manager and then have worked in in lots of capacities in refugee resettlement. And these days, as a director, about how many staff and volunteers do you have in your unit? Yes. 
uh, on in the refugee program at, at uh, Refugee and Immigrant Community Services, we have around 25 staff. Um, and volunteer-wise, we have a very robust volunteer corp. Uh, we have, at any given time, between 150 and 200 active volunteers. That's amazing. Yeah. One of the things I want to talk to you about today, uh, Leah, is we're orienting our listeners to some of the most basic of requirements to resettle refugees and asylee newcomers to the U.S., in your case, Chicago. There's a great deal of logistics involved. So for start, who governs and initiates the services for refugee arrivals in a region in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a really complicated uh, question. So the answer is is also complicated. Um, Refugee resettlement in the United States um, uh, is governed um, predominantly by the State Department. So the State Department works in conjunction with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees to allow refugees to be resettled in the United States. There is a part of the State Department called PRM, the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, and they're responsible for um, the initial resettlement of refugees to the United States. And PRM works with what are called national resettlement agencies or voluntary agencies or VOLAGs, lots of different names for them. There are nine of them located in this country, and um, they're located mostly in the Washington, D.C. region. And each of those VOLAGs has uh, entities throughout the the nation that actually do the work of resettlement. And so it's sort of like a, a network that stems from PRM to the VOLAGs to the affiliates to allow refugees to come and to welcome them to the United States. So there's a component then of federal funding. Definitely. What does that look like for an individual or family? So the State Department grants a what's called a, a one-time refugee assistance grant for each refugee that's resettled. Uh, it's currently two thousand. It's around two thousand dollars, two thousand one hundred seventy-five dollars per individual. Um, that partially goes uh, to direct financial assistance to the refugee, and then part of it is given to the agency for administrative fees, staffing, paying the rent, transportation, all of those things. Um, it's a per capita fee, so as refugee arrivals dip, so does the funding, um, and as they rise, so does the funding as well. In addition to that, federal those fe- federal funds, there's federal funds that come through another uh, refugee agency, or, sorry, a national government agency called the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and ORR, as it's called, uh, grants federal dollars for ongoing refugee assistance. So things like employment or case management, some youth services, that funding flows through ORR to the states, and then the states administer that kind of assistance. You know, there's a lot of talk about vetting arrivals, and usually with respect to national security, at least the, the dialogue in the press. But it's our understanding the vetting has long been highly complex. It involves due diligence and numerous agencies, as you've mentioned. Uh, And this might change across new administrations, new leadership in federal government. Has it been any more difficult to resettle candidates as a result of changes in these vetting processes over the years that you've worked here? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, historically the the refugee vetting process has been really robust, and there's always there have always been a number of federal agencies involved in the vetting process that takes place abroad prior to to resettlement. We have seen, however, that you know in the past two plus years there have been changes to the vetting procedures. There's um, what's now called enhanced vetting procedures, and that it's taking refugees even longer to make it through a really already arduous uh, resettlement uh, process. I think on average, we saw previously that it would take a year and a half, 18 months for for individuals to make it through even prior to these um, enhanced vetting procedures. And now it's taking even longer than 18 months just to make it through the 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 vetting sort of procedures. So that does have an impact, obviously, on people making it to the United States um, and getting here and us being able to serve them. It also has had an impact, I think, on um, the kinds of arrivals that we've seen over the past two, two to three years. We had, you know, in 2015 and 2016, seen a number of, of refugee arrivals coming from places such as Syria, where we know there's a terrible crisis. And in recent years, we've really seen very, very few Syrian arrivals. This year, we resettled um, a handful of Syrian cases, but it had been several years prior that we had no Syrian cases arrive. Um, And that is in part due to um, some of these enhanced vetting procedures. This is is a tough one, and uh, I apologize for the scale of this. But Again, I don't think our listeners have a true appreciation for the scale of logistics involved in resettling an individual or family. Can you take us through, at the highest level, the practical aspects of day one through 90, let's say, of the onboarding process after you've been assigned a client's? uh, any clients. And we're talking about finding a job, housing, school for your children. Sure. I can, I am happy to do that. I could spend probably days talking about that. So I will do this quickly. You know, really our work starts before day one, because as soon as we get a travel notification, we are tasked with finding adequate and safe and affordable housing for, for refugees. So Generally, we'll get a travel notification and we'll have a few weeks between the time that we get the notification and then the time that we expect that case to arrive at O'Hare. And within that time frame, our case management team is is looking for an apartment for that individual or that family. And with the limited knowledge that we know about the case that's arriving um, and then the really real financial constraints that we have with that $2,000 per capita that we have. So just for a moment, then, the traditional deposit, first and last month's rent, must come from that initial stipend? Much of the housing is paid through that stipend. That initial refugee get, grant that, we, that resettlement agencies per, receive, are that, those funds are to provide core services for the first 90 days of resettlement. So that's housing, food, clothing, all the, the the amenities that need to go in your, like all the things that need to go in the house, the furnishings, uh, furniture, pots and pans, transportation. So um, in Chicago, we purchase passes to get on the CTA. So all of those things generally come out of that for that resettlement check, which you can imagine in a city like Chicago, particularly if we're with a single case, those funds are 
pretty much already gone before that person steps off the plane. Um, once we pay a month of security deposit already, we've spent the entire part of that, that portion. Um, and so generally, refugee agencies do quite a bit of fundraising to, um, to supplement those funds because we know they're not sufficient. And we want to provide um, our, our participants with, we would like to provide them with a lot more than that. So um, we do our own fundraising to make sure that we're able to pay for those first three months of rent and then also have refugees have cash, to, you know, for buying things. So yeah, that's how it works. So would you say the typical allotment that you actually need would be twice or more than that initial? At, at least twice. I mean, it really would probably be like four times that amount because the the amount of, of funding that's um, directly allocated on the part of the refugee is around $1,000. A studio apartment, for instance, in the city of Chicago, one month of rent is around on the cheap end, maybe the cheapest we can get is $900. So if we think already that we had to pay a security deposit and three months rent, that in itself is $4,000 and we get $1,000. And that's not clothing or food or transportation or medicine that they need to have or any spending money for them to buy anything. Um, so at minimum, double, but yes. So on the subject of, of medicine and basic human services, you're involved with referrals and helping them to find doctors. Sure, yeah. So we each refugee that arrives in the United States has to must undergo um, intensive medical screenings prior to arrival. But once they arrive, they are screened within 30 days upon arrival um, at a clinic here in Chicago. Um, and oftentimes things that will come up at that medical screening that didn't come up abroad because maybe the facilities here are... Um, are more advanced and um, the doctors are able to find um, things here that they might not have been able to find at a refugee camp abroad. And what comes out of those screenings sometimes requires really intense follow-up. Um, so people arrive with maybe chronic illness, maybe illness that they did not realize that they had abroad, that now they're going to have to have ongoing treatment. We've had people arrive who um, have cancer or have um, severe uh, heart defects or um, who arrive and find out that they're expecting and they didn't know. So all of those things obviously require uh, medical attention. Um, and a lot of those more complex medical cases require a number, like navigating a very complex medical system in the United States that, that's complex for Americans, but for people who are coming from abroad with limited English and zero knowledge of our medical system, it can be an extreme challenge, if you can imagine. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine. Typically, um, how long does it take to find employment? Yeah, so our goal is really to get people employed by the 90th day, right? Because we have this, this direct federal assistance that's for the first 90 days. And so ideally, someone would be uh, employed at day 60, so then they're able to start paying their bills at day 90. We know that that doesn't happen for most cases. We, however, at Heartland, we are really fortunate in that the majority, the vast majority of our cases are employed by 120 days in the country, so by four months in the country. And that means that to make that happen, our employment team and our case managers are talking with participants around, about employment within their first 10 days of being in the country. We're having discussions around 
what they did in their home countries, what they desire to do here. Um, start People start going on job trips pretty quickly. We help people build resumes. We're connecting them with employment. It's, it's a really rapid fire job search when, when people arrive. You'll excuse me for saying it's staggering to me to think that you would uh, place them in positions within 90 to 120 days. It's, I have worked here for quite some time, and I've been involved in refugee resettlement for a while. And I think, and even to me, it's sort of, when I sit down and think about it, it is mind-boggling to think of that. And I, when I think about myself, I've, I've lived abroad, and it takes a while to even get used to the, the climate and learning English and to think about the fact that we are, the expectation is really that people are moving to employment within the first three to five months of being here is, it's, a, it's sort of amazing. And I, I think what's more amazing is that people do it and that when participants arrive, when refugee participants arrive, often they are so eager to work. So um, it's not that we're forcing them to work. A lot of times people are really eager to work and to be to contribute to society and yeah, yeah, and people are eager to get back to their professions. So people really do have a desire to, to work. And so on that subject of um, English acquisition, you're involved in that as well on day one, English as a second language? Yes, day one is really busy. <laughs> We're involved in a lot of things on day one, when um, generally day two. On the day one, we pick people up from the airport and we let them, we take them home and let them rest. But on their second day here, they um, participants are welcome to our office, and they're connected with a number of services. And one of those services is um, English language training. We're really fortunate that we have um, four levels of English language training um, Monday through Friday at our site, and um, participants can can actually access that for as long as they would like. So they're invited to attend for as long as they would they need English as long as they're not working and can attend the classes. So people are, are assessed when they first arrive and connected with English classes. And we also have one-on-one tutors for individuals who want more assistance as well. Our listeners should know we arrived this morning, I think it was around 9.15, and there were uh, many students and teachers that were arriving at that time. And we've heard throughout the morning here uh, multiple classes so in all of this, how important is the volunteer community to rendering services, particularly a teaching? Yeah. Volunteers are really, uh, they're vital to, to the services that we provide. If you recall when you asked about the number of staff that we have and the number of volunteers, we have 10 times as many volunteers as staff around that. And we know that there's the funding for refugee resettlement is quite limited, which means that we also have pretty limited staffing. And so volunteers really do allow us to expand our reach when we're providing refugee services. You know, volunteers do a lot of really important work when we are required to, um, when we go out and do grocery shopping for arrivals prior to them coming, generally volunteers are doing that for us here. They're going to the grocery store and picking up food for people so that they um, have food to eat when they first arrive. Um, we have volunteers that provide um, one-on-one tutoring to individuals. We have volunteers who are helping with our after-school program or in our early childhood education room. They really do provide a, a great deal of assistance to our participants. I think one thing that volunteers also provide that's that's actually maybe the most valuable is just friendship to people. You know, I think 
when refugees arrive, there's a lot of hope and a lot of opportunity, but there's also a great deal of loss. You know, people have lost their home countries. A lot of times they've lost family and friends. And I think it is really isolating to enter into a community where you don't really know very many people. And so I think volunteers can offer that friendship, which I think is vital. You know, having someone who knows you and knows your name and can come visit you at home and um, is doesn't have to enforce any federal regulations like case managers do, who's really there just to provide friendship, I think is really um, so important and can really make a, a difference in the lives of our participants and in the lives of volunteers. Participants enrich the lives of our volunteers as well. Having been a volunteer, I understand that. And I also have a basic understanding that there's a deeper requirement for what is called psychosocial integration that um, goes far beyond can I count currency and navigate a grocery store? Yeah, that's that's huge. I mean, counting currency and, and navigating a grocery store are really important, but um, do you feel safe when you're going into your community? Do you do you do you feel like you're able to advocate for your children in their school? Those are all important things, and those are things that contribute to a great deal to the quality of life of any individual. Feeling like you have a, a community who understands you and can support you, are you connected to a um, faith community? Those are all like things that make life, you know? And so I think having uh, people who can connect you and support you in that is really important, and having a sense of community is is vital. I think I just think about myself in my life, the places when I've lived abroad. I could figure out how to get on a bus and get somewhere, but it was really when I figured out that I had a, a community and people who could support me when I was having a rough day. Those are the places where you feel like, oh, this is home or somewhat like home, you know. So that our listeners can get an idea of what it looks like here in Chicago, can you give me an idea of the national origins uh, that you're serving? Yeah, that's interesting. That's a really interesting question because it's really changed a lot over the last three plus years. In the last year and a half, I think we've seen a lot of individuals coming from um, the African continent. So a lot of families from um, Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, Eritrea, those that's probably been some the majority of our cases in the past year or so. But we also have um, families coming from Burma, a lot of individuals and families who are Rohingya participants. Uh, we have a handful of, of participants in the last year who have come from Syria, Afghanistan. Um, those are probably the Ukraine, interestingly enough. Um, those are the, the, the majority of the, the cases that we've been seeing of recent, recently. So do you have a, a staff or adjunct interpreters that work for you? Yes, we have many, many interpreters. We have quite a few staff who are bilingual, which is great. So I would say at least half of our staff speak another language um, and a language that our participants speak as well. Um, and then we have a cadre of probably like 12 to 14 um, interpreters um, that are that come into the office when needed. They interpret for 
individual appointments, but also for things like um, our cultural orientation classes, or we've recently launched a series of financial education workshops, and the interpreters are are there to provide interpretation for, for those things. We do find that we often, because our populations change so frequently, we're ha- we have to hire new interpreters really frequently when we get a new language that we haven't resettled before, which can be a challenge, but keeps us on our toes, I suppose. (laughs) So how long do you uh, support these services for refugee individuals and families? Um, We've heard something about the limitation on financial assistance and and how long uh, that lasts. But pitting that towards, say, case management, for instance, how long are you involved in a a refugee or a sideways life. Yeah, yeah. the financial assistance is quite limited, unfortunately. Direct financial assistance generally lasts for the first 90 days, and we will often help cases past 90 days if they aren't employed or have um, special circumstances. But case management is really different. We actually are really fortunate in that we have adequate funding to support people through case management for up to five years. So people can access case management services, actually employment services as well, for up to five years after they've arrived. And people can come to English classes for as long as they want to learn English. I would say, though, that the majority of people don't access those services for up to five years. There are a handful of participants who really um, need more intensive services, who might have a lot of needs, you know, up to their five, their, their fifth year in country. But the majority of participants are eager to sort of move on and, and live their lives. And they might check in every now and then when they need something, but um, they're not really accessing ongoing case management services for up to five years. So five years to me sounds like the opportunity towards gaining U.S. citizenship. And are you involved in that road to citizenship? Yes, it, it varies. I think, you know, sometimes we're involved more directly depending on the case. But we do, you know, refugees are on a path to citizenship. So they're eligible for to apply for a green card after one year in country and then eligible to apply for, apply for citizenship after five years. Um, for green cards, for um, that... Um, we work really closely with another um, Heartland entity, which is called the National Immigrant Justice Center. Um, they provide legal services, and they come here to this site um, about once a quarter, and they actually help our participants file. They, they'll file the green card applications for them, which is really helpful. Um, and then they also provide ongoing legal assistance for things like family unification, if people want to bring them here. We have provided citizenship classes to some individuals um, who are wanting to take that citizenship test. We either have um, group classes that we can provide or a lot of people are engaged in more individual tutoring. And then we can also refer them to file for citizenship too. I think a lot of times by the time participants are filing for citizenship, they're not as engaged with us. And so they might, they actually might file without our assistance, if that makes sense. With green cards, we're much more involved because that's after a year and they're often more engaged in services at that point. So in September of 2019, our president signed the so-named Executive Order on Enhancing State and Local Involvement in Refugee Resettlement. We know it greatly reduced refugee admissions to the U.S. There were numbers as high as 85,000 about three years ago. Uh, That number declined to 30,000 and 18,000 in this recent order. 
It also, we understand, requires states to give consent to the Secretary of State uh, to state their intention to accept refugees. And uh, there appears to be a component that infers a preference towards specific national origin, uh, those who helped with the Iraq War. I imagine all of this uh, has impacts on your fiscal year planning uh, and maybe the very perception of continuity of your services and programs that you'll provide this fiscal year and going into subsequent years. Can you speak to us about that? Yes. Um, I think this, the presidential determination and executive order this fiscal year really changed the landscape of refugee resettlement in the United States. Um, and therefore, they changed the landscape here in Chicago and in this office. First of all, the, the just the number of, of refugees, the ceiling. So the 18,000 is a ceiling. So that's the most refugees that could be resettled. Um, this fiscal year is the lowest in the history of the United States. And given the global crisis of um, displacement is really sort of shocking. And it really does impact the number of people that will be resettling and that every resettlement agency will be resettling in the United States. Um, and I think that coupled with the changes of um, categories, and so th thinking about the fact that, as you, as you mentioned, there's a shift from the previously established categories of region to other different categories, so Iraqi nationals or um, religious minorities, it really makes it hard to, to plan because the, the resettlement process in the United States has been established over a course of 40-some uh, years, and, and, has, and all of a sudden it seems like it's really, there's a, a market shift, and we as local resettlement agency are not, a, we hadn't been planning for such a shift. And I think the policies and procedures that have been put in place weren't put in place for the categories as such, like as they are now. All of that means that for us as a local agency, we're really uncertain of how many arrivals we'll have in this fiscal year. And as I mentioned earlier, the number of our funds, part of our funds flow um, from uh, a per capita um, from per capita refugee arrivals. So if you can imagine, if we don't know the number of refugees that we're going to expect, then we can't really make a budget. And that makes it really difficult to plan staffing or paying rent or, you know, all the things that an agency needs to do to survive. I think the, the other sort of difficulty is that it's not just about numbers, it's about people, more importantly. And we have a lot of participants that we've resettled over the years who have family members who are in the process of, of um, going through the resettlement process um, with the United States. And it's really difficult because I think at this point we have very limited knowledge of, of whether they will come and the likelihood with such a low number and with the new categories, the likelihood that many of these cases will be coming in the next year or so is very, very low. And that's really hard to share to people when they're asking about their sister or brother or nephew or anyone or just a friend. Um, and so that impact, I think, is also also 
huge. Well, and certainly, and, and not to sound glib in any way, the forces of the world don't tell us in advance what populations will be persecuted yeah, in the future. That's true. So, Leah, we've been talking about some pretty difficult changes and concepts in refugee resettlement, but I'd like to know what gives you hope and why you walk in the door every morning. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, there are, there are definitely many challenges in this work, and I think, particularly right now, I think, however, if I think about the challenges and the things that give me hope, I think the things that give me hope outweigh the challenges. And those are, the things that give me hope are, are generally people. Um, I, that's the staff that work here who work really hard for little pay. <laughs> um, and I think are, are really committed to this work, I think. Uh, so being in a space where people who are committed to serving people and to doing it very well and uh, with empathy and compassion and humility, I think is is very is is a source of hope for me. So de- definitely the people I work with and the participants that we're serving. As I mentioned, I've been here quite some time, and I've gotten to know a lot of refugees uh, in my time here. And so being able to see people come from really difficult circumstances and then rebuild their lives and contribute to society in any number of ways, whether that's we have staff who have been resettled here, who are resettled and now are working here as staff, or people who are um, working in leadership positions in in the companies that they're working with or raising families or buying homes. Seeing, being able to have that perspective of seeing people who have already been through the process, I think is very hopeful. And then I think the other, the other group of people that give me hope are people like you and our volunteers, people who are not, don't work at refugee resettlement agencies and maybe aren't refugees themselves, but are part of the general public who are uh, in support of refugees coming to the United States and show that support through volunteering or from donating or through having a podcast, um, all of that's also really helpful to me. So those are all things that give me hope. We're certainly glad to be in your constellation of hope. J- just to close this, you know, a podcast has no borders. It will reach an international audience, a national audience. It'll certainly reach uh, individuals in Chicago. Mm-hmm. What can our listeners do to help? Yeah, there's a lot of, of things. I think uh, one is volunteer. Uh, I think I think that's actually really helpful. Volunteer with a refugee organization. Give your time to refugees. Give your money to refugee organizations because we all are hurting right now. Those are all important things. But I think also really educating yourself about what's happening with the refugee resettlement program. There is the last three years, I think, for refugee resettlement have been pretty horrible and um, there's been a really uh, systematic uh, dismantling of the program, and yet I think very few people are aware of that. And then, and so therefore, very people are very few people are actually advocating for there to be something different. Um, and so I think really raising your own awareness and hopefully the awareness of those around you of um, the fact that the, the refugee program is really struggling and um, holding our elected officials accountable to welcome refugees in the future, um, I think is really important. 
So those are the things that I would recommend. So on that note, uh, we've been speaking with Leia Teano Gustafson, the Director of Re- Refugee and Immigrant Community Services at the Heartland Alliance in the Ravenswood neighborhood of Chicago. Thank you again, Leia. Thank you so much. Find out more about us at crossingsrefugees.blog. That's one word, crossingsrefugees. There you'll find essays, photos, and news surrounding our podcast. On Twitter, with the handle at refugee underscore America. Visit heartlandalliance.org for more information on today's subject. Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America is produced from Denver, Colorado, It's written, produced, and edited by Vincent Hostack, with contributions from Janice Pugh-Wohler, co-producer and research. Music is composed, performed, and produced by John Orr Franklin. Find his music at johnorfranklinmusic.com. That's J-O-H-N-O-R-R-F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N music. Incidental music and sound design for our opening vignette, Shyam's Story, by your host, Vincent Hostack. We dedicate ourselves to building empathy between newcomers and the native-born in the United States. Please go out and make it a more welcoming world. And listen soon for three more episodes from Chicago. Chicago.